0: If you have a Bible, grab that and meet me in John chapter 1. Uh, We are going to conclude our Advent series today through the Gospel of John in the first chapter. Next week, um, we're going to be in John again, but what I want to do today is I want to conclude by showing you a couple things. I want to look back at where we've been, and I want to show you where we're going today and what we're going to do next week. If you... If you didn't know, the Gospel of John, it's, it's different than the other three Gospels. The, the Synoptic, or the same Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they record 90% different information than John does. John doesn't actually record Jesus' birth narrative. However, if you study John chapter 1, it is all over the place. So what we did in the first week is I took a bit of a more apologetic look. Um, that doesn't mean to apologize. It actually comes from the Greek word apology, which means to make a defense for uh, so you looked at the proof of the Bible, the one who hung the stars in the sky, the one who gave light to the world, was the one who can save your soul. And I showed you this, that, that believing is a step of faith, but it's a reasonable step. It's a reasonable step. If you actually go through all the proof, you can go back and listen to it if you want, but there's, his secular historians have no answer for Jesus. He's the most influential person who has ever lived, and yet he never wrote a book. He died with 11 friends, one who portrayed him, never was famous, never had a celebrity status, and he became the most influential person in human history. They have no answer for the fact that just a couple weeks after his death, a worldwide movement sprang into existence and has continued to be the most influential religion on the planet. Last week, we took a different look at Jesus. We took a different angle. The the Christmas story is about worship. So if the apologetics, if you will, if the proof of Jesus' existence are overwhelming, then he demands our worship. John tells us that the light of the world that gives light to everything, also, if you receive him, you become children of God. That's the Christmas story. God making a way for you to believe. Him putting on flesh. Him living your life so that you could draw near. See, I showed you this last week. The, the Greek word there for belief is the word pastuo, which literally means to give yourself to, to, to sit in or to believe in. If you see Jesus for who he is, you have to trust him as Lord of your life. Today, today I want to take the angle a bit different and do more of a teaching look at Christmas, the, the Christmas story that, that, that I want to show you how it fulfills the entire purpose of the Bible. Now next week, I'm going to show you, we're going to look at Jesus through the lens of the very first miracle in the Gospel of John. It's going to be different. Um, You probably never heard a Christmas sermon like this, but we're going to look at Jesus at the very first wedding, turning water into wine, and what that shows us about the birth and the life of Jesus. See, Advent, Advent is about slowing down enough to see Jesus for who he really is. It's about paving the way for Jesus. Advent is about creating the space to recognize your need for him. It's not a cute little story about a baby in a manger. It's about a God who condescended his own creation to come and be a part of it. So if you have your Bible, again, we're gonna be in John chapter one. I want you to find your way there. We're gonna look at verse 14. As you do that, let me ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself in a position to where to where you you finally met somebody that you might have emulated your entire life, like like that moment where where you stand in what you feel like is in front of greatness. Maybe it's a famous person, maybe it's somebody that you've looked up to, a president or or whatnot. Several years ago, I was in Orlando, Florida, the most unhappy place on earth. Uh, And I was having lunch with a friend of mine at his hotel, and we go to the hotel, and we get on the elevator and start going up to his room when the doors open, and the patron saint of City Church, Tim Keller himself, walked into the elevator. I'm telling you, the glory of God shined off of his bald head, like it was radiating glory. And I sat there, and I wanted to look at him, and the man was larger than life, like theologically larger than life, but if you didn't know this, he's like six foot five, so I'm looking up at him. And I can't get a word out of my mouth. I'm like, I can't wait till this guy gets off the elevator. He didn't. He rode up to the same exact floor as us, walked down the hallway, and went into the room next to the room that we were in. I said zero words to him, and I was mortified. I walked away, and I told my wife, guess who I just met, Tim Keller. She's like, what'd you say to him? Nothing at all. I didn't (laughs) say a single word to him. See, sometimes... Sometimes when you're standing in front of greatness, it it stops you right in your tracks. What I want to show you today is that Jesus entered into humanity to be near you. He entered in to be present with you. He came so that you could stand in front of him in physical bodily form. And let me just tell you, Jesus is not like Tim Keller. Jesus is incomparably more amazing than him. And he is incomparably more amazing than any celebrity that you could ever put your face in front of. And he is worthy of your worship and praise and emulation. If you get the Christmas story, what you understand is this is not just a God who is distant. He is a God who is real, who came to be near you. So if you take notes, big idea today, it's simply this, God is near. God is near. If you get anything out of this Advent message, God is near enough to be known and big enough to be God. Both of those things are true at the same time, and it's the greatest miracle in human history that changed everything. Listen to what it says in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In this one verse, you get to see the most amazing encapsulation of the entire Bible and the entire biblical story. See, when John says that the word became flesh, he's talking about, and I showed you this last week, this idea of incarnation, that he incarnated himself. He put on flesh. John wants you to know that the word that created everything, remember, lagos to theos, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word that created everything, that hung the stars in the sky, that was in the beginning with God, that created you, that breathed life into you, this word that was the light of the world, this word became flesh. The word there is sarx. It's the the Greek word for flesh. He's telling you he became a real human being. Not some fairy tale, not some image, not some philosophical truth. He became a physical body. Y'all, God took himself into physical being so that he could accomplish the greatest act in human history. Now, I had a couple conversations with some people last week and And I felt like it was important enough after those conversations to slow down. And I want to explain some things to you because because I I think sometimes we make some assumptions. Listen, the reason that God had to put on flesh is because it was the only way to forgive you of your sins. The question I ask my my kids all the time is, could God have forgiven you by not dying in your place? The answer to that question has to be no. No. Yes, he could have waved a magic wand. He could have just said, you are forgiven. Yet, but if he would have done that, he wouldn't have been a very good God. Let me explain. Um, Miroslav Volf, he's he's the president of Princeton um, Seminary now. He was a Croatian that that was in some concentration camps during their their civil war. And, And he put it like this. He says, people that want God to just be all loving and not have any justice have never experienced real injustice. He says, if you've ever experienced real injustice like I have, a God that's all loving, that doesn't demand justice, is not a good God at all. Imagine this. Imagine the most horrific thing that could ever happen come into your mind. You you place it there. Now imagine that that thing happened to you and you went to court and the judge is standing behind his little throne and he looks out at the the perpetrator that does this to you or to your family and says, I'm in a good mood today and I'm just going to forgive you. I know it was an accident. I know that you did some wrong, but you know what? I'm going to forgive you. In the most egregious terms ever, he looks at you and says, you know, I'm just going to forgive you. Do you know that guy, That judge is not good? Like, that judge is not kind? That judge is unjust. See, see the reality is, it's not kindness to just forgive. It's, it's actually injustice. So God became a man and put on flesh in order to take the punishment that sin deserved. That's the Christmas story. God standing in your place, taking your punishment, looking into the face of Jesus who was perfect and sinless, and he, in his face, became perfect love and perfect justice. See, God can forgive you because he's punished your sin in Christ. Y'all, God is so loving that he wanted to die for you, and yet he's so good that he could not just forgive you, he had to absorb the punishment for your sin in your place, Theologians, they call this penal substitutionary atonement. That's a big gasp of words there, but let me just explain it. Here's what it's saying is Jesus took on the full penalty, right? That's penal. Penalty deserved by sin by substituting himself in our place, and he was able to do that because he really was fully man. He really was a human being that took on sarks, that took on flesh to live your perfect life, to die your death in your place. And because he could do that, he became the atonement for sin. And when God looks at you, what he sees is Christ's righteousness in you, not your goodness. That is so important. You don't have to earn God's affections. Jesus earned it for you. All you have to do is receive it. That's the point. God has to be God in order to be perfect, but he had to become man in order to experience the entire life that you would and yet do what you never could do. Watch this. Adam, the very first human being, Adam represented you. That's why you were born sinful, if you will. He imputed his sinfulness on you. The reason why that's important is because if one man can represent you, so can another. Jesus represented you and he imputed his righteousness back onto you, and he was able to become your representative head by putting on flesh and doing what you never could do. See, Christmas is about reminding you that God entered in, that he incarnated himself. He is the living word that became flesh. Now watch this. Look at the second half of verse 14. And the word that became flesh dwelt among us. See, God didn't just put on flesh, he dwelt among us. If you if you underline words in your Bible, if you circle words, if you have a pen or a pencil, I would circle that word dwelt. It's the, maybe one of the most important words in the entire Bible. It's the Greek word skanu. Um, it's fun to say if you want to skanu. He, he pitched a tent. Literally, It literally means to tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. Why is that important? If you go back to your Old Testament, the tabernacle was the meeting place between God and man. It was, it was where the nation of Israel, they would set up these tabernacles or these temples so that they could enter in once a year, make a sacrifice, and meet face-to-face with God. Here's the deal. Every single religion on the planet has a place where they meet with God. Matter of fact, if you go out into the lobby, you'll notice there's three pictures that have our, our mission statement. One says worship God, one says serve our city, and the other one says love our world. On the Love Our World picture, you'll you'll notice that there's a couple of us walking barefoot in a mosque in South Asia. Many people believe it's the largest mosque in South Asia. And what you find is in the middle of this massive mosque, there's a pool where you have to clean yourself in order to walk into the holy place of God to worship. the, The reality is, is every religion on the planet has a holy place. We have a holy person. See, God himself put on flesh. To be a holy person. The gospel is not that Jesus entered, uh, the gospel is not that you have a temple to go to, it's that Jesus himself became the temple. He became the meeting place between God and man. Here's why that matters because of Christmas, you have access to God. You don't have to go to a place to worship, you go to a person. See, this building, it's amazing. I love this building. Yet you don't need this building to worship Jesus. You can worship Jesus anywhere, you can go directly to him. In, in my Bible reading time this week, um, I was reading 2 Samuel 7. And if you get to 2 Samuel 7, King David is, is in this, this place to where he wants to worship God. And he realizes that the tabernacle is that God is walking around in a box and God needs a home. So he gets this idea. He's like, I need to build a palace for God. Listen to what God says to him. He says, go and tell my servant David. He goes, all right. 2 Samuel 7 verse 5, if you have your Bible, no matter if, you can just grab it there. There you go. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from, my, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see, David thought he was talking about Solomon, but God was talking about Jesus. If you go back to the lineage of Matthew, Matthew will tell you, where, he'll tell you in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus comes from Bathsheba through this line, through Solomon, all the way to where God makes good on this promise, and the house that he's building is not a place, it is a person. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped foot onto the scenes of human history, God told David that he will build a house that will last forever. His son, Jesus, his son is the person that built that house, and it's not a place, it is a person. Listen. God doesn't need a home, we do. He built this house because we needed a place to enter into his presence so that we could be at home with him. See, God has designed all of us to find our center around something. We had to find the orbit of our lives around something. For Israel, that meant the temple. They found the center of their lives around the temple. It was a place that they would meet and they would make sacrifices. Listen, we need a center too. We need a place where we can worship and make sacrifices. The thing is, is that place isn't a building, it's a person. That, that, you gotta understand this, that God Almighty, he, he became the temple. He indwelt human flesh, so that ultimately the orbit of your life can center around him. See, because God created everything, because he entered into humanity, he entered in so that you and I could find our center in him. The, the Christmas story is so much deeper than what we think about on the surface. Y'all hang with me for a second because I want to show you why the tabernacle is so massively important. In the Old Testament, there was a veil that separated what they called the holy of holy, the holiest places between God and man because of our sin. We could not enter in. It represented the place that God would be. All of us had to be outside of that. And when Jesus died on that Easter Sunday, it says the veil was torn in two. Do you know why? It wasn't because of a piece of fabric. It's because the God of the universe was torn into so that he could be the veil that was torn so that you could enter in. And a high priest, a high priest would have to stand before God to represent you. Y'all, it's still necessary. Like, contrary to popular belief, you still need a priest to stand before God. He's just not found at the Catholic Church. The book of Hebrews says that, John, that Jesus himself became your great high priest. That makes intercession for you. So every single time that God is looking down at you, Jesus is saying, not that one, that one's mine. I, I paid for that one. That, that one right there, he's mine. I'm gonna make intercession. I'm gonna stand before God on behalf of you. Why? Because the most important aspect of going into that holy place is that a sacrifice had to be made. And the Old Testament is showing you that an animal would never be good enough. So what they would do is they would take two goats and they would kill one of the goats, and they would pour the blood of that goat onto the next one, and that goat would take away the sins by running off symbolically into the woods. If you didn't know this, that's where you get the idea of a scapegoat from. Watch this. Jesus became the Lamb of God that was slain, and then he took the sins of the world on himself and carried them as far away as to the east is from the west. You can stand in the presence of God because you have a great high priest who made a great sacrifice, who embodied the temple so that you and I could enter in. Y'all, John wants you to know that he dwelt. He indwelled himself. He became the temple. He wanted you to know that the God-man entered into humanity. He's saying that the central meeting place between God and man is Jesus. So let me just be really clear so we're not confused. If you wanna have a relationship with God, you have to become a follower of Jesus. He's the only way to enter in. Tim Keller, the patron saint, here's how he said it because he always says it better. We need a place to meet God. Jesus is saying, not only am I the God of the temple, but he's saying, I'm the temple itself. He's saying, I am the temple to end all temples. I am not only the one you seek, I'm the one who has provided the way to get to the one you seek. And we have seen his glory. In the face of Jesus, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, I love how personal John gets. It's almost like John is sitting here in his old age and he's reflecting, I have seen the glory of God. The word there is doxa. That's where you get the word doxology from. It's the word worship. In the Old Testament, the word is kabod, which means weight, like a weightiness. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is preeminent. He's prominent. He's the one that weighs heavier on your hearts and on your souls and on your lives, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one more worthy of your praise. There's no one more worthy of your worship. He demands our worship because he is who he said that he is. Y'all, the truth, if you want to talk about truth and grace, the truth is that none of us, none of us deserve it. None of us could stand before God. And the weightiest thing that you can ever experience is understanding, looking into the face of Jesus, that he died for you while you were yet a sinner, and yet he did it because he wanted to. That is worship. Think about it. Has anybody ever told you anything that you felt so, like the weightiness of that? They, they're like, hey, I got to confess something to you. I don't know what to do with it. And then you hold on to that. The, you ever felt that weightiness? It's almost like, I try to come up with the best example for me, the weightiest thing I've ever felt, other than being a dad, was when we started this church and we started hiring staff. For me, that was like, oh my gosh, like, it's no longer people get, these people's lives hang in the balance, their families hang in the balance. Like when we bring people on, um, there, there's a weightiness to that. John is saying that the seeing God's glory in the face of Jesus should be the weightiest thing in your life. It demands your worship. It's like, it's like standing on the elevator with Tim Keller and being and tongue-tied, right? And when you stand in the presence of God, the very first thing you should do is drop to your knees and worship. It's a weighty thing. See, John stood in front of the king of the universe. Wrap your mind around that. There's no one like him. There's no one larger than him. There's no one bigger than him. He's big enough to, to handle your biggest problems. He's more loving than you could ever imagine. He's full of grace and truth. That means he's overflowing with grace and truth. He's so full that it overflows out of the cup of who he is. Randy Alcorn, he said it this way, truth without grace is legalism and grace without truth is deception. See, one leads to religion. The other one leads to destruction. In the face of Jesus, you get the fullness of grace and truth. Again, the truth is, we're so sinful, he had to die for us. But he's so loving, he wanted to die for us. Al- Alistair Begg, he's a, he's a Scottish pastor. He'd probably do this a lot better than me with his Scottish accent, because everything sounds cooler in an accent. Uh, he, he says, um, when we get to heaven, and we're asked that question on that final day, If you answer that question in any other tense besides the third person, you've got it wrong. If if, if you answer the question, how do you know you're going to get to heaven? And you say, because I, because I believe, because I did this, because I had faith. You say, that's the wrong answer. The only correct answer is in the third person, because he, because he did, because he stood on the cross. He, He said, think about the thief on the cross. Right, one day I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm going to look at the thief on the cross and be like, "How in the world did you get here?" Like one second you're cussing the guy, and the next second you're in heaven. Well, we're going to get there, and imagine imagine the sounds. They're like they're like, "Hey, sir, on what basis do you do you get to be in heaven?" The guy's going to be like, "I don't know. I, honestly, I don't know." Like, and, and, and the angel that's standing there is going to be like, "How how in the world are you here?" He's like, "I don't know. Do you?" And the angel's confused. He's like, I need to go get my supervisor angel over here. The supervisor angel walks up, and he's like, sir, on what basis are you here? I don't know. Can you describe to me what penal substitutionary atonement is? Nope. How about the Bible? The Bible's the most important thing in the world. Did you read your Bible? Never. On what basis are you here? The dude in the middle cross said I could come. He says that's the only correct answer. For any of us, any other answer will either lead you to works righteousness or lead you to despair. One will tell you that you're never gonna get there. One will tell you that you deserve to get there. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I'm a really good person. I've only ever done like one thing wrong. Criminals go to jail for doing one thing wrong, by the way. It's not about your righteousness. It's about Christ's righteousness in you. You have to be really careful to preach the gospel to yourself every single day or you will either fall into despair or you'll become arrogant. Listen to me, because the sinless Savior died, my soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, it's the most magnificent truth ever. That's why John would say this. Now John, this is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this is whom, I'm sorry, this was he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his, listen, fullness, we have received grace upon grace. I tried to wrap my mind around this this week and all I can think about is Jesus is like the Niagara Falls of grace. Have you ever seen it? It's just rushing waters that never stop. It's a Niagara Falls of grace. The one who hung the stars is full of overflowing grace, <clears throat> continual grace, grace upon grace. You know, this blew my mind whenever somebody taught me this, but it makes total sense. You know, when you're at your worst, when you're hiding in your shame, that's when you can be closest to God. Like he's ready to clothe you with his grace because he never runs out of grace. You, you know that, right? Like, do, do, you, do you understand? Do you understand that when you are at your worst, Think about it, it's so counterintuitive. Your shame will wanna tell you to run and hide and yet God is so full of grace that because he turned his face away from Jesus, he will continually turn his face to you. If you have kids, you get this. When my kids are at their worst, what do I do? I don't push them away, I bring them in and embrace them. I hug them, I tell them it's gonna be okay. You all the greatest comfort in the world is that God is no different than you in that aspect. When you are at your worst, he draws closer to you. Think about that. That is the definition of grace. Grace is God not giving you what you deserve. It's grace upon grace, continual overflowing grace like a river that never runs dry. When you don't believe the truth, there is more grace in Jesus than there is doubt in you. Listen to me God is not in danger of running out of grace. He's not like me, He doesn't lose patience. He's gracious, He's kind. He's full of grace. He indwelt that grace into the person of Jesus. He came down. He incarnated himself to make a way. So when you feel at your worst, God is drawing nearer still to you. If you you ever want to experience the fullness of God, all you have to do is receive his grace. It goes back to what we talked about last week, verse 12. Remember this? But to all who did receive him... Who believed, that's that word, pastuo, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Christmas story is the reason that we believe. It's the pastuo, it's, it's receiving his grace. I told you last week, it's like sitting in the chair. You can tell me all day long that you believe these chairs will hold you. Your belief doesn't become pastuo until you actually sit. It doesn't matter if you think the physics of that chair are great. It doesn't matter that you think that they look a whole lot better than the old maroon ones that we had. It doesn't matter what you think about those chairs. You don't believe that those chairs can hold you until you finally sit in them. The Christian faith is the same way. You can tell me every Bible verse that you know. You can tell me that you've walked with Jesus since you were a baby. I don't care about any of your knowledge. Jesus even says, even the demons believed. You know what the difference is? They never pastu They never gave themselves to him. For many of us in the South, we run risk of doing the same exact thing. But if you'll receive his grace, there's more grace in him than you could ever imagine. Paul said it this way in one of my favorite Bible verses. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul's response is, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, insults, persecutions, hardships, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You pursue Have you done that? have you believed? See, Advent is about finally recognizing your need for a Savior and finally sitting in the chair to receive His grace. To all who did receive Him, to all who did receive Him, He will give the fullness of His grace. You know, in the 17th century, there was a young boy. Uh, he grew up in, in a really good Christian home. As a matter of fact, like most of us, I, I would hope that my four children would tell you that they are growing up in a good Christian home. Things were great. He, he had everything that you would ever think until his his mom died, and when his mom died, his dad remarried, things fell apart, he became orphaned, he found his way onto the Royal Navy. Through, through the course of time, he became an alcoholic and, and moved over to Africa and ended up on some slave trading ships, and he became a terrible human being who hated his life. He sailed the seas, found his way to Scotland, where he hit rock bottom to the point in which his boat almost sank, and he's sitting on a boat in Scotland, looking back on his life and all that he had done and how he hated himself, and then he started to write these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. His name was John Newton. He became one of the most famous pastors, preachers to ever live. Do you know what changed John Newton's life was grace upon grace. As he hit the lowest part of his life, all he could look up was he could look up to God and say, God, I've done the worst things imaginable and yet you've given me grace. You know why that's important? It doesn't really matter what you've done. It matters what he did. See, the grace of God is a person to catch. Grace is powerful. It's powerful because it's a person. Do you know the the word grace, it's the Greek word charis. Uh, it, it, It literally means beauty or charm. You know why? Because when you look in the face of Jesus, the beauty of that drives out the darkness. I've told you this before, if you, were, if you ever want to stop sinning, you don't have to create a bunch of habits like um, the, the Atomic Habit book, even though it's a great book. Uh, you don't have to have all these different habits. What you have to do is you have to fall in love with something you want more, right? I, I, you know, guys, the reason why I'm faithful to my wife is not because that's what you're supposed to do. The reason why I'm faithful to my wife is because I love my wife. I love my wife more than I want that. The, the reality is, that's what grace upon grace does to you. It changes the disposition of your heart to see the love of God, which drives out the darkness. And darkness has to flee in the presence of light. And that is a person. When Jesus entered the room, death had to run away, which is exactly what happened whenever he rose from the dead. Christmas is about grace, about God entering in to bring light to your life and beauty to your darkness. I love this, D. L. Moody. D. L. Moody said, you may read in the papers one day that D. L. Moody is dead, don't believe it. He's as alive as he was when he walked this earth. Because grace upon grace is a person in Jesus, because the Christmas story is real, because he entered in, you will live for all of eternity. You will either live in the presence of grace or you'll walk in darkness. The beauty of Christmas is he made a way. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? The law, works righteousness, the things you do, it's like a map or a mirror. Maps can tell you how to get somewhere, but they actually can't get you there. Mirrors can show you reality, but they can't change your reality. It's like this. This, this year, my, my oldest daughter, who's nine, which blows my mind. I shouldn't have a nine-year-old. Uh, she broke her foot, and we had to take her to uh, Atlanta Children's, and they did an x-ray. You know what the x-ray told us? Her foot was broke. You know what it did? Nothing. Didn't fix her foot. It just diagnosed the problem. See, that's what the law does. The law diagnoses the problem, but it can't fix the problem. And This is why religion is a trap. Religion will tell you all day long that if you're good enough, even functional Christianity will tell you, just do a bunch of good things and you'll make your way to heaven. The, the main goal of all religion is to ascend to God. You know what the last time somebody tried to ascend to God was? The Tower of Babel. That did not work out well. The point of Christianity is God descended to us. It is a major difference. God came down. You don't build your way up to him. Religion will lie to you, and it will always lean from one side to the other. It will either be all grace, which is not loving at all. Try it. Try to go home and just be all gracious to your kids without ever disciplining them or telling them the truth about anything. You know what you're going to have? You're going to have one of those kids that none of us like. Because all grace, as cool as it sounds, is unjust. It's unkind. It's not loving. And all truth is just crushing. We need both. See, Jesus is the vehicle that gets you to your destination because he accomplished your redemption. The law doesn't have the power or the authority to save you. It just reveals the problem. Y'all, we have a problem. We aren't perfect, and the gospel demands perfection. Here's how I would say it. It's not your works. It's his work that saves you. He lived your perfect life. He died your death in your place so that he could give you life. Here's the good news. Jesus was perfect, and he made a way, which brings it all full circle. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christmas makes God visible. See, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve walked with Jesus, and you get to see him face to face. Moses. Moses wanted to see God face to face, and God says, you can't do it because it would literally kill you. It'd be like looking directly into the sun. Last week, I told you that that God stood face to face with man for the last time in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world. The greatest prophets that have ever lived in human history didn't get to see God face to face. And John says, you can. Now, can I tell you something amazing about the truth of Jesus? Scholars will tell you that it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus actually had the worst experience ever. It wasn't on the cross. If you notice this, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he starts to sweat drops of blood. But Notice this, it's actually in a garden. That's the first sign, that's really cool. Jesus entered back into the garden that you couldn't so that he could give you what you couldn't. What what ended up happening? When when that moment happened, God turned his face away from Jesus. Why why did God turn his face away from Jesus? Think about it. God only turns his face away when sin enters in. Sin is what separated the relationship. It was for the very first time, it was in that moment that he took on the full wrath and penalty and sins of the world so that God, watch this, so that God could turn his face away from Jesus and turn it to you. It's in that moment, it's in that moment that the one who had experienced eternal relationship, perfect beauty, never-ending love and joy, he experienced separation from God the Father so that you would never have to. See, See, the reality is, is because you, because he turned his face away from Jesus, he can turn it to you because now when you look into the face of Jesus, you get to see and experience God forever and ever and ever. The most amazing part is and the most amazing part is, it's not a picture. You know, it's not Swedish Jesus that hangs out in your grandma's church basement in the Sunday school room, right, or Fabio Jesus. It's, it's the Holy Spirit indwelling in you so that God himself lives inside of you, changing you from the inside out. So not only do you see a face of Jesus in a picture, you actually experience him inside of you because he didn't just indwell a person, he indwells every single human being that just decides to walk in him. That's why Jesus brings clarity to who God is. When you get Jesus, you get God. Now, let me be super clear on this Advent Sunday Jesus is our only God. That's what John is saying. It's, there's not multiple ways to heaven, there's no other way. By which man can be saved, but through Christ alone. And if you, if you ever think that there's any other way, you rob Jesus of the joy of Christmas and Easter. Think about it. If there's another way, then Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection would be unnecessary. It's an affront to God. But because he is the way, because God the Father entered in, he has made himself visible for the very first time. The thing that was lost because sin entered the world was a relationship with God. You couldn't see his face. And because Jesus entered in, God has turned his face back towards you. He has made the image of God visible for you. Like St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Have you done that? Have you looked into the face of Jesus? Have you pastu Have you given yourself to him? Have you stared into the face of greatness, if you will, and let it humble you? That's what Christmas is all about. Have you worshiped and have you received? Y'all... Christmas is about looking into the face of Jesus and seeing the image of God in a way that nobody throughout human history was able to see since sin entered the world. God has made a way. Let me just ask you, is Jesus your only God? Is he your only God? During this Christmas season, is he the only one you've trusted? And, I, and here's what I don't mean. I don't mean like, do you worship Allah? Are you Hindu or Buddhist? Are you an atheist? That's not what I mean. Most of us would obviously answer no to that question. I mean, is there any other gods before Jesus, like the stuff that you worship, the idols that you have, the the things you pestuo in? Are you putting your trust in the 401k? Or or is it breaking you now that the economy is suffering and there's a recession? I think. We, We debate that term all the time. I think there's a recession. Does it crush you? Does it crush you when your kids don't do what you think that they should do? Are you putting your faith in anything but Jesus? Y'all, we live in a pluralistic society, but let me be really clear. Jesus seems to be a pretty binary God. There are no other gods before him. Unto him is the only way that you can have life. There aren't all these different things. You don't add him like a smorgasbord to your other gods or deities that you worship. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him because nobody else had taken the full wrath of God on themselves and absorb the punishment. Listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. There's really only two ways. You can receive the punishment already given in Jesus or you can take it yourself. The gift of Christmas is you don't have to. You have to decide who your God is going to be. Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley who started the Methodist Church, he he said this most beautifully and I, I put it up here. I love this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin in nature's night, thine eye diffuse a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon's flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The gospel demands that you awake. Your chains fall off. You follow thee. Have you pisteoed on this Christmas Advent Sunday? Have you received? Have you believed? Have you sat in the chair, opened your hands from this to this, and have you worshiped? Y'all, it's not about a baby in a manger. It's about a God who indwelled a body to take on the full wrath of God so that you could see his face again. He desires to be in relationship with you. All you have to do is receive it and believe it. So here's how I wanna respond. I wanna invite the team up. I want to respond in worship. I want to pray over you and I want us to sing as people who are redeemed. Hey, I did this last week and I liked it. I want to do it again. Why don't you stand up? Why don't you open up your hands like this and let me pray over you and I want you to receive, receive the grace of God as we sing together. Father, our empty hands, we ask that you would fill with your glory. God, whatever, whatever symbolically, is being weighed down in these hands. The worries of this world, the salvation of my kids, the uncertainty of the economy, the health of my family. God help us to let them go and trust you. Help us to receive the gifts that you've given us. The finality of this world I pray that we would let it go for the eternity of a kingdom with you. God, help us to see your face because you turned your face away from Jesus. Help us to receive your grace. Help us to walk with you because the sinless Savior died. Help my soul to be counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him. Pardon me. Thank you, Jesus.